Welcome to Crime and Beauty, the true crime podcast that ends in something beautiful. I'm your host, Megan Freeman. On Crime and Beauty, we cover topics that some may find disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. you're having a wonderful weekend. I'm sure some of you have already started your holiday vacation, whether that just means disconnecting from work or um, doing some traveling. And if so, I hope it's done safely. Very exciting with some um, rollouts of the vaccinations. I've seen some people in my personal network that have received it, which is great. And hopefully that will continue to roll out smoothly in the new year. So a lot to be grateful for. And I still feel very lucky that I have the privilege to be able to produce and host a podcast, a little humble podcast, and that anybody is listening. I really, really appreciate it, and I'm excited for the future. So for today's case, we are going to be covering Larry Jean Bell. And really quickly, I'll talk about my sources. The main one actually is Mindhunter by John Douglas. And many of you may have seen the popular Netflix series, which I highly recommend. Um, And I think that they are either for sure canceling it or not or postponing the season three, which is so sad because season two was even that much better than season one. And I think it's such a compelling story. So not really sure what's happening there, but it seems to be on an indefinite hold. But This was actually a book, I'm very close to finishing it, but um, it was what inspired me to cover this case because there's a whole chapter about it and it's really interesting. So um, another source that I used was an article um, by Becky Bean called Left Behind, Survivors of Capital Crimes Don't Want the Victims to Be Forgotten. There was also an article by Cliff LeBlanc in uh, The State. And I also used, you know, Wikipedia, Murderpedia, all of those sort of conglomerates of... um, sources. So, but yeah, truly the main one would be Mindhunter. And I would recommend that as a book if you are interested in true crime. I, I think I've mentioned it on previous episodes. And I would say actually it got, it, it's gotten better as I've read further, the beginning part where it really talks about John Douglas's life and his um, career sometimes comes off ultra arrogant, to be honest with you. Um, but I think as they cover, as he covers more sort of pinnacle cases, um, it, it becomes quite interesting. And the whole idea of behavioral profiling is is super fascinating and obviously has worked um, in many cases. So this one was pretty interesting to me. So let's dive right in. Larry Jean Bell was a double murderer in Lexington County, South Carolina, who was electrocuted on October 4th, 1996, for the 1985 murders of 17-year-old Sherry Faye Smith and 9-year-old Deborah May Helmick. He was also a suspect in two other disappearances, the 1984 disappearance of Sandy Elaine Cornett, who was the girlfriend of one of Bell's co-workers, and that of Denise Newsom porch who was last seen in July 1975 and lived in an apartment complex close to where Bell had lived. Both young women vanished in Charlotte, North Carolina, and remained classified as missing. Now let's dive into his early life. He was born in Ralph, Alabama, and had three sisters and one brother. 
The family reportedly moved frequently, with Bell attending Eau Claire High School in Columbia, South Carolina from 1965 to 1967. The Bells moved to Mississippi, where Larry Jean Bell graduated high school and trained as an electrician. He returned to Columbia, married, and had one son. In 1970, he joined the Marines but was discharged the same year due to a knee injury suffered when he accidentally shot himself while cleaning a gun. And gun owners out there, if you're listening, does that happen? Is that really that feasible? I'm like, why would you have it loaded if you're cleaning it? So weird. I think obviously the the underlying context is that he probably didn't want to stay in the Marines because that just seems like a bonehead injury. So my guess was that he was just over it and wanted to leave but who knows. The following year, he worked as a correctional officer at the Department of Corrections in Columbia for one month. Obviously didn't last long, and my goodness, is he not the right personality for that. Bell and his family moved to Rock Hill, South Carolina in 1972, and the couple divorced in 1976 with the ex-wife maintaining custody of their son. In 1985, Sharon Fay, who went by Sherry Smith, was a beautiful and vivacious 17-year-old high school senior. On the afternoon of May 31st, 1985, and May 31st is actually my mom's birthday, so shout out to you, Mom. Um, She was not born in 1985, though. That would be um, impossible. (laughs) She was kidnapped at gunpoint as she checked the family's mailbox at the end of her driveway on Platte Springs Road in Lexington County, South Carolina. This was two days before she was scheduled to sing the national anthem at the Lexington High School graduation. According to her father, Bob, she had a gorgeous voice. She was voted the wittiest in her class as well as the most talented. That day, she was coming home from a nearby shopping center where she'd met her boyfriend, Richard. Her father had seen her pull up in the car, but when she didn't come to the house, he thought perhaps she had sought out water due to a rare form of diabetes she suffered from. He went out to check on her and found the car abandoned with the door open, the motor running, and Sherry's purse on the seat. Bob immediately called the sheriff's office in a panic. 42 minutes later, police officers sat in the Smith's living room, suggesting that Sherry had simply run away from home, but her parents dismissed that notion at once. Sheriff Jim Metz then organized the largest manhunt in South Carolina history, pulling in hundreds of volunteers and local, state, and federal law enforcement. The family waited for news and finally received a phone call from a strangely distorted voice, which told them that he had Sherry captive. So they knew it was not a hoax. He said that she had on a black and yellow bathing suit beneath her shirt and shorts, which was true. Sherry's mother, Hilda, pleaded with him and alerted him of Sherry's diabetes and that she needed regular medication, nourishment, and water. The caller made no ransom demands and simply told her that they'd be receiving a letter later that day. At this point, Sheriff Metz called the FBI. Both the South Carolina Field Office and the Behavioral Science Unit in Quantico, led by John Douglas, who I mentioned earlier. After analyzing the evidence, the FBI was concerned that Sherry was already dead and that the kidnapper had seen her at the shopping mall and followed her home. Unfortunately, she had stopped at that mailbox, which gave the kidnapper an opportunity to snatch her. As a next step, the sheriff's department set up recording equipment in the Smith's home in case the caller reached out again. But then came Sherry's letter, a handwritten last will and testament filled with love and courage. And if you aren't familiar with this case, or you don't think you are, you may be just because of this one factor. 
Inside the envelope written in Sherry's loopy cursive was a letter titled Last Will and Testament. The upper right corner of the paper read 3.10 a.m. It says, I love you, Mommy, Daddy, Robert, Don, and Richard, and everyone else and all other friends and relatives. I'll be with my father now, so please, please don't worry. Just remember my witty personality and great special times we all shared together. Please don't even let this ruin your lives. Just keep living one day at a time for Jesus. Some good will come out of this. My thoughts will always be with you and in you. Following this in print, but not cursive, just like the rest of the letters, were the words casket closed in parentheses. So very, very scary. Now continuing the letter. I love you all so damn much. Sorry, Dad, I had to cuss for once. Jesus, forgive me. Richard, sweetie, I really did and always will love you and treasure our special moments. I ask one thing, though. Accept Jesus as your personal Savior. My family has been the greatest influence on my life. Sorry about the cruise money. Somebody please go in my place. I am sorry if I ever disappointed you in any way. I only wanted to make you proud of me because I have always been proud of my family. Mom, Dad, Robert, and Don, there's so much I want to say that I should have said before now. I love y'all. I know y'all love me and will miss me very much, but if y'all stick together like we always did, y'all can do it. Please do not become hard or upset. Everything works out for the good for those that love the Lord. Romans 8.28 All my love always, Sharon, in parentheses, Sherry, F. Smith. I love y'all with all my heart. P.S. Nana, I love you so much. I kind of always felt like your favorite. You were mine. I love you a lot. I haven't said y'all that much in a long time. Not to be insensitive, but... Wow, can you imagine being 17 years old, you've been kidnapped by some crazy person and forced to write a last will and testament? You know, I'm not a religious person, but I'm kind of speechless at the courage that this young lady had in, in such a dark moment, you know, and if she's writing a last will and testament, I mean, it's pretty obvious that she was, you know, going to be murdered. And I think she knew that. So I can't even imagine how she was able to compose herself enough to compose such a a lovely letter. So, yikes. Sheriff Metz sent the pages to the crime lab for fingerprint and paper analysis. In the meantime, the family received another call asking if the letter had arrived. When Hilda asked for proof that Sherry was alive and well, the caller said, you'll know in two or three days. But he called back later that evening and told the family that she was alive and would be released soon. Several of the caller's statements, however, told the FBI otherwise. He had said, I want to tell you one other thing. Sherry is now a part of me, physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. Our souls are now one. Now you may wonder why didn't police just trace the call? Well, unfortunately, at that time, the caller would have needed to stay on the phone for 15 minutes in order to get a trace, and of course, that never happened. The FBI then advised the Smith family to be calm and collected in any future communications with the caller, much like a police negotiator handling a hostage situation. They were to listen carefully, restate anything important the caller said, and try to get him to react and reveal more about himself and his agenda. The next night, the caller spoke to Sherry's 21-year-old sister, who looked very much like Sherry, a young blonde with a megawatt smile. 
He gave Don details about the kidnapping and said that he forced her into his car at gunpoint when he saw Sherry at the mailbox. During this dialogue, he ranged from being outwardly friendly to matter-of-fact to vaguely regretful that the whole thing, quote, got out of hand. He then said, okay, 4.58 a.m. No, I'm sorry. Hold on a minute. 3.10 a.m. Saturday, the 1st of June. Uh, she handwrote what you received. 4.58 Saturday, the 1st of June. We became one soul. Hilda asked him what he meant by that, and he said no further questions and that they would be receiving instructions on where to find them. He then called at noon the next day. Listen carefully. Take Highway 378 west to Traffic Circle. Take Prosperity Exit. Go one and a half miles. Turn right at sign Moose Lodge number 103. Go one quarter mile. Turn left at White Frame Building. Go to Backyard. Six feet beyond. We're waiting. God chose us. Then he hung up. Sadly, this led police directly to Sherry's body. She was wearing the yellow top and white shorts she'd been last seen in. The state of her body indicated she'd been dead for several days, most likely since 4.58 a.m. on the morning of June 1st that the caller kept referencing. It was further impossible to determine the method of killing and whether she had been sexually assaulted. The pathologist believed, however, that Sherry either suffocated or died from dehydration, resulting from her rare form of diabetes. John Douglas and his team were convinced he had strung the family along long enough for critical forensic evidence to degrade. They also believed that this individual was returning to the body for some type of sexual gratification, and that once she had decomposed to the point where a relationship was no longer possible, he would stop going there. Their profiling indicated that the unidentified subject was in his late 20s to early 30s, that he'd been probably married early, briefly and unsuccessfully, and at present, he'd either be living alone or with his parents. They also suspected he had a criminal record, including assaults on women or at least obscene phone calls. He would target children or young girls. Unlike a lot of serial killers, he would not have approached sex workers due to being too intimidated by them. He was almost certainly white, overweight, with a poor self-image, and not attractive to women. Close associates may have noticed an increase in drinking, some weight loss, and an eagerness to discuss the case. He would collect bondage pornography as well as clippings about the case. His precise directions and the self-correction about timing also gave more insight into this individual. He was rigid and orderly, meticulous and obsessively neat. He would take notes compulsively and keep lists on everything. And if he lost his place in his notes, he would lose his train of thought as well. His car would be clean and well-maintained. Overall, he would present an outward contempt for the world, but he was conflicted with deep-seated insecurities and feelings of inadequacy. They also felt that he was a local man, having placed Sherry's body in a secluded area that would only be known by someone from the area. Since the subject used a device to distort his voice, the FBI further believed that this person had some background in electronics, possibly from construction or being involved in home remodeling as an employment. The caller reached out to the Smiths again and asked for their forgiveness. He also implied he was considering suicide. He told Dawn, This thing got out of hand and all I wanted to do was make love to Dawn. I've been watching her for a couple of... Dawn interrupted and said, To who? The caller then said to, I'm sorry, to Sherry. 
He would go on to confuse the sisters in more instances. God, can you imagine being Don? That is so creepy. He then called a local television anchor named Charlie Keyes and spoke of his intention to turn himself in, but that he wanted Keyes to serve as a middleman and promised him an exclusive interview. Keyes promised the caller nothing. John Douglas felt the caller had no intention of turning himself in or killing himself. He was a narcissist that would kill again. The underlying theme was power, manipulation, domination, and control. In another call, he told the family that he had sex with Sherry and gave her the choice of death, shooting, drug overdose, or suffocation. She opted for the latter, so he wrapped duct tape over her nose and mouth. I cannot imagine a worse way to die. That is horrible. And to be telling her family this, this person is truly sick and evil. Two weeks to the day after Sherry was kidnapped, nine-year-old Deborah May Helmick was abducted from the yard in front of her parents' trailer home in Richland County, 24 miles from the Smith home. Her father was inside the house at the time, but a neighbor saw someone pull up in a car, get out and speak with Deborah. He then grabbed her and yanked her into the car and sped off. Much like Sherry, Deborah was a pretty blue-eyed blonde, but she was much younger. Another massive effort was launched to find her. Investigators were confident that this was the same perpetrator. At this point, the caller hadn't reached out to the Smith family, so John Douglas recommended the authorities team up with a reporter to help draw him back out. Margaret O'Shea from the Columbia State newspaper was chosen. The FBI recommended a story featuring Don. They held a funeral service at Lexington Memorial Cemetery with a white wooden lectern constructed with Sherry's picture laminated on the front. Don held up a little koala bear stuffed animal from Sherry's large koala collection and attached it to the stem of a rose from one of the bouquets. They were hoping the killer would come and take it as a souvenir. And of course, O'Shea had had a photographer take many pictures of the service. And meanwhile, Sheriff Metz and his team were surreptitiously writing down license plates numbers for all the cars passing by. The killer never came for the koala bear, unfortunately, but he did call again, this time collect cruelly as Sherry Faye Smith. On this call, he threatened Dawn that she was next and that she couldn't be protected forever. He then asked her if she'd heard about Deborah May Helmick, and he gave some morbid instructions again. Okay, listen carefully. Go one north, well, one west. Turn left at Peach Festival Road or Bill's Grill. Go three and a half miles through Gilbert. Turn right, Last dirt road before you come to a stop sign at Two Notch Road. Go through chain and no trespassing sign. Go 50 yards and to the left, go 10 yards. Deborah May is waiting. God forgive us all. At this point, he didn't alter his voice, indicating he was getting bolder and more dangerous. Meanwhile, the crime lab was subjecting Sherry's last will and testament to all kinds of tests. Using a device called an ESTA machine, which can detect almost microscopically slight impressions made on the paper from sheets that had been higher up in the pad, a partial grocery list was discovered and what seemed to be a string of numbers. They were able to detect 9 out of 10 numbers, starting with 205. This was an area code for Alabama. They were able to narrow it down to 10 possible phone numbers in Huntsville and cross-check them with the Columbia-Lexington County region. One of them had received multiple calls from a residence just 15 miles from the Smith home, several weeks before Sherry was abducted. According to municipal records, the house belonged to a middle-aged couple named Ellis and Sharon Shepard. Several deputies raced to the Shepard home. 
The couple were friendly and didn't fit the FBI profile, except for Ellis being an electrician. They acknowledged making calls to Huntsville where their son was stationed in the Army, but were out of town when the murders were committed. Police then asked if they knew anyone that fit their profile, and they said, in fact, yes, that would be Larry Jean Bell. Bell was in his early 30s, divorced with his son. He was shy and heavyset and worked for Ellis doing electrical wiring at various houses and other odd jobs. He'd also house-sat for the Shepherds for six weeks while they were away, then had returned to his parents' home where he'd been staying. Sharon Shepard recalled writing her son's phone number on the pad of paper should Bell need to contact him in case something came up with the house. When he'd picked the Shepherds up at the airport, all he wanted to do was talk about the murders. They'd been surprised by his appearance. He'd lost weight, he was unshaven, and he seemed highly agitated. Police then asked the Shepherds if they had a gun. Ellis said he kept a loaded 38 pistol for protection, but when Ellis took them to see it, it was missing from its normal spot. Searching the house, it was discovered under the mattress of the bed that Bell had slept on. There was also a copy of Hustler magazine under the mattress, depicting a blonde in a bondage situation. They then played a recording of one of the telephone calls with Dawn and the caller, and the Shepherds positively identified the voice as being Larry Jean Bell. Bell was arrested early in the morning as he left his parents' home for work. According to Sheriff Metz, it was like a whitewash came over his face. He was Mirandized and waived his rights, agreeing to talk. While he was being questioned, investigators searched his home. His shoes were perfectly lined up under his bed, his desk was meticulously arranged, and even his tools and his well-maintained car were precisely set up. They also found directions to his parents' house on his desk, written much the same as the ones that were given to find Sherry and Deborah's bodies. There was also a book of stamps, the same type of commemorative stamp used to mail Sherry's last will and testament. There was more bondage pornography and hairs on his bed that would match up with Sherry's. After his arrest, when his photograph was shown on TV, the neighbor who had witnessed Deborah's abduction identified him as the captor. Police learned that Bell had been involved in various sexual incidents since childhood. When he was 26, he tried to force a 19-year-old girl into his car by knife point. He avoided prison by agreeing to go to psychiatric counseling, but abandoned it after two sessions. I don't understand how that's possible. Like, how are people not checking on him? I think if he stops going and it doesn't complete as many sessions as he needs to, he should immediately go back to prison. So that, to me, is negligent on police or whoever is responsible for that program. You can't just stop going. Because, of course, five, five months later, he tried to force a college girl into his car at gunpoint. Now, this time, he received a five-year prison sentence, but he was paroled after 21 months. While on probation, he made over 80 obscene phone calls to a 10-year-old girl. He pled guilty and only got more probation. Once again, what, what is going on here? 80 obscene phone calls to a 10-year-old girl and he just gets probation, more probation time, obviously that's not fixing the problem. And once again, it goes back to that whole idea of how sexual crime was not taken as seriously as it should have been. If I was the parent of that 10-year-old girl, I would have been furious. So I don't know what, I don't know what went on here, but I just don't think it was taken care of properly, and look at the dire consequences. But anyway, after his arrest, he wouldn't talk and he denied involvement in the crimes. Even after investigators played the tape recordings, he was totally unresponsive. 
After six hours of nothing, he did request to speak with Sheriff Metz, but still did not confess. John Douglas would then take a crack at him and would share insights into his profile, which he said Bell nodded in agreement to. And though he never confessed fully, he did say to John Douglas, all I know is that the Larry Jean Bell sitting here couldn't have done it, but the bad Larry Jean Bell could have. At trial during his six-hour testimony, he continuously blurted out bizarre comments and carried on nonstop theatrics, rambling continuously and refusing to answer questions. He later made statements indicating that he may have been attempting to fake mental illness in order to receive a more lenient sentence. He claimed to be Jesus Christ until his death, and obviously he was feigning mental illness. This was a completely methodical, organized killer, and he displayed an intense amount of manipulation, so there's no way he was mentally ill. And ultimately, he chose to die by the electric chair instead of lethal injection. He was the last death row inmate in South Carolina executed by electrocution, and this occurred on October 4, 1996. He took a vow of silence in the hours leading up to his appointment with the chair, which he believed was made of the same, quote, true blue oak as Jesus Christ's cross. He had delusions of being Christ and told the doctors the chair's 2,000 volts of electricity would allow him to ascend to God's throne. That's such BS. And apparently a crowd cheered as the hearse carrying his body left Broad River Correctional Institution. Meanwhile, Hilda and Bob Smith sat alone in their living room watching the news on TV. We prayed for him, Bob says of the man who abducted and killed their teenage daughter 11 years earlier. And I felt sympathy for his parents because he was their child. But there was no closure when they executed him. It couldn't bring Sherry back. What touched the Smiths as they watched the news coverage was the sight of their daughter's friends gathered outside of the prison gates, not protesting for or against the death penalty, but simply holding lighted candles in Sherry's memory. That meant so much to us. We just want Sherry to be remembered, you know, said Hilda. And a year after Sherry's death, her sister Dawn was crowned Miss South Carolina in 1986. Now known as Dawn Smith Jordan, she became a Christian singer-songwriter and wrote a book about her family's story throughout their ordeal, and it's called Grace So Amazing, A True Story of God's Grace in the Midst of a Life-Shattering Tragedy. She also recorded a song called Sisters that was dedicated to Sherry. Unfortunately, I couldn't find any information or direct quotes from Deborah May Helmick's family, my thought is that they were much more private. Um, I also got the sense that perhaps they were more lower income. So I don't know, even though she's this beautiful young child, I almost feel like there was a bit of a bias socioeconomically that, you know, Sherry came from this really um, middle, upper middle class type of family. So she received so much more coverage. And then, you know, Deborah was abducted from outside of her trailer home. And it's like, you don't hear much about it. So I'm not really sure if that's the reasoning. That's just me speculating. It is unfortunate, though, because I think that with this case, both are horrifically tragic, but there's so much more information regarding Sherry as opposed to Deborah. So either way, a horrible, horrible tragedy, and I hope that both of them are resting peacefully. And wherever Larry Jean Bell is, I hope he's rotting because he's a horrible, horrible, horrible person. Okay, guys, and now for something beautiful. So because it's winter time and the air is dry AF, I was thinking I would focus on something, an area that would require a lot of moisture, especially this time of year. And that is um, 
the lips. So I chose Fresh Sugar Advanced Therapy Treatment Lip Balm. It's not the cheapest. I know that there are other options out there, but it's phenomenal. It comes in both sheer and sheer pink, and I've had both, and both are lovely. The sheer pink is nice if you want just like a tiny bit of color, um, but it is very sheer, and it's basically it hydrates your lips for 24 hours and really smooths them out. The sugar-infused formula also contains sea fennel to help smooth fine lines, antioxidant-rich orange extract, and moisturizing hyaluronic acid spheres, which basically draw in moisture. And 100% of people felt that it protected their lips overnight, removed dry flakes, and improved dry lips. 97% reported that it improved elasticity and smoothness around the lip area, and Lord knows we need that this time of the year. And think about it, you know, a lot of people are really not into wearing um, lip colors under their masks, um, which I understand because having your makeup get rubbed off on your mask and you get those awful lines. And I, you know, don't have a great solution for that because even the little silicone braces that make breathing easier and lift the actual fabric off your face still, you know, make make marks on your face. But I will say that this is definitely something you could wear under a mask and not really worry about it getting all over the place. Um, but it is it is a wonderful product. I've used it for a long time. As I said, it's it's not the cheapest lip balm out there, but it really does the job. You, it's one of those products where you can just tell that you're paying for better quality. And also, they sell they sell fresh on their website. They sell it at most department stores, Sephora. Um, so check them out. Dear friends, thank you so much for tuning in to episode 16. Larry Jean Bell is a piece of trash, and I feel very sad for the families that had to experience that grotesque behavior um, back in the 1980s. But, you know, you just have to be careful, stay vigilant. I mean, I, it seems that these were both crimes of opportunity, which is so sad. Um, but, you know, it does show, especially in Sherry's case, the power of faith. Again, not a religious person and not trying to suggest that that makes anyone better or worse. But clearly for some people, it can make a huge difference and um, allow them to experience something so traumatic with a lot of grace. Um, and I think the message was quite inspiring. I can't even imagine being a 17-year-old with that sort of gravitas and grace. So, um, again, may both of them rest in peace. Hope you enjoyed this episode. If you would like, um, please send me a Gmail at crimeandbeautypodcast at gmail.com with any case suggestions, anything like that. You can find Crime and Beauty on Facebook at Crime and Beauty Podcast. You can also find on, um, and on Instagram at crimeandbeauty.podcast. You can listen on all the different things, Amazon, Google, Spotify, Apple, Audible. I think I'm forgetting some. Uh, Podbean at crimeandbeauty.podbean.com. And until next time, thanks for listening and stay beautiful. Happy holidays. Happy holidays.